would just like to say, somewhat in the form of an apology, that this flu bug going around is no respecter of persons. I'm um, battling just a little bit today, and so I'm going to um, I'm going to ask for you to pray for me as we get through this message today, because I have something I really do want to deliver to you today. Um, well, this has been a nasty season for it, hasn't it? So so many uh, people have been fighting this thing. Let me just pray, Lord. I ask your grace upon the breaking of the bread this morning, I ask that you will give us wisdom and discernment and understanding as we open your word. Lord, I thank you that from the weakness of my lips to the ears of the hearer, the Holy Spirit is able to do such an incredible, incredible work. I never cease to be amazed at what you're able to do. And so, Lord, I ask today that you will You will uh, illuminate our hearts with the truth of your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. For I say it in Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. In this passage that I want to unpack to you this morning, um, we see a man experience a complete change of life, a complete change of function in, in life, and I need you to go with me for just a few minutes as I lay the groundwork and set it up for you, and then uh, we'll make the practical application as we come to the end, uh, but you need the foundation, you need the groundwork, so, so please stay with me as I do that. Actually, what we're going to see in Scripture is a bartender, a man who's serving drinks, who becomes a hero. And he ends up being used incredibly by God. Now, how many of you never knew that there was a bartender in the Bible? How many of that's news to you today? All right. <clears throat> Can that really be? Well, I'm going to show you. What I want us to see this morning is how when God puts something on your heart, it can literally change the directional course of your life. The change that took place in the life of the man we're going to study is one that took him from literally serving drinks, and I presume getting tips for doing so, to then leading the most powerful nation on earth, and to be a part of the rebuilding process that is going to change so many lives. So follow me as I, as I lead you through this, and let's look at 2 Kings chapter 24, and I'm at verse 10. During Jehoiakim's reign, the officers of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. Now, this is God's discipline upon his disobedient people. And let's see some of the things that were done to the people, because it was absolutely devastating. Verse 13 of of, uh, chapter 24, as the Lord had said beforehand, Nebuchadnezzar carried away all the treasures from the Lord's temple and the royal palace. He stripped away all the gold objects that King Solomon of Israel had placed in the temple. So all of those elaborate chapters of Chronicles where Solomon's making all of these things for the first temple have all been destroyed, cut in pieces, melted down, and some of them taken back to Babylon. Verse 14, King Nebuchadnezzar took all of Jerusalem captive, including all the commanders and the best of the soldiers, craftsmen, and artisans, 10,000 in all. Only the poorest people were left in the land. So what we see is Nebuchadnezzar was literally creating a ghetto, making everything poverty-stricken. He said, I'm going to take out all the people who have creativity. I'm going to take out all the people who are courageous. I'm going to take them out of the city, and I'm going to absolutely destroy Jerusalem. I will take the best of the best people 
and use them in Babylon, and I'm going to destroy your city only to leave the poorest of the poor. That's all that's going to be left. And he strips them of their courage and creativity. He removes their leadership in verse 15, and he brings them into exile. He puts some of his own relatives in charge, and then he comes back for another round or a wave of what they call the exile. And here's the part I want you to see starting in verse 9 of chapter 25. He, Nebuchadnezzar, burned down the temple of the Lord. He burned the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. And so when you looked at Jerusalem, everything is going up in flames because he comes in and he burns down every single house, including the house of God. But then it gets worse. 25 verse 10, then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Verse 13, the Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars in front of the Lord's temple. They smashed them. The bronze water carts and the great bronze basin called the sea, and they carried all the bronze away to Babylon. And suddenly, you're faced with a people who are now experiencing incredible, incredible suffering. Families have been separated. All that you have known and all that you knew uh, and were comfortable with and, and all that was part of your life has been ripped from you, destroyed, or burned to the ground. You've watched children being taken in captivity. And it becomes this moment of Jewish history that is simply devastating. They've come in, they have desecrated, they've devastated, they've destroyed everything that has anything to do with Jerusalem. De desecrated a temple and devastated a city. Have you ever noticed, church, that the question is almost always the same when you're dealing with people who reject the existence of God? Most atheists with whom you'll speak or even agnostics, and those with whom you might be discussing or having a, 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 a dialogue about the existence of God, the question most generally comes back eventually in that conversation to the same thing, and it's the question of suffering and the question of pain. And it goes like this. If your God truly exists, and He is all-loving and all-powerful, then why didn't He heal? Why didn't He stop? Why didn't he prevent, why didn't he halt uh, uh, this or that thing that took place and caused so much suffering and pain? They will go as huge as the Holocaust or maybe as personal as the, the cancer taking the life of their own mother or something like that. If your God exists, and this is what they would say, then either one of two things has to be the case. Either he is all-powerful, but he's not all-loving because he just doesn't care, or He's loving, but he can't be all-powerful because he's loving, but he can't do anything to stop the devastation. And that's the conclusion that they reach. And those are pretty much the two levels that you're always dealing with when it comes to the subject of pain and suffering in the existence of God. You may be here today asking that same question. You may be struggling with the same thing. So what do you do with that question? Uh, the all-loving, all-powerful God, and yet pain and suffering is part, of the, is part of our world, part of our lives. A man well-known to many of us who have followed the work of Teen Challenge is the man who founded the work, and his name was, who knows, David Wilkerson. 
David had as good a response to this question as anyone that you will ever that you will ever hear. Because the story goes that one of his grandchildren came to him and asked him, David, the question about the all-loving, all-powerful aspect of God as they were struggling with it. In fact, that Wilkerson family struggled with un- unbelievable pain and suffering and all kinds of, kinds of issues. Um, and so that's why his own grandchildren began questioning the all-powerful, all-loving God. And from Dave Wilkerson's 12-year-old granddaughter who had brain cancer and was taken home to be with the Lord to David's own wife who had 21 cancer operations and two daughters who battled cancer. And it just kept coming and coming in waves and waves and waves over that family over and over. And so it was clear that the grandchildren were asking, what, what about this? How can this be true? We've given our lives in ministry. We've followed you in ministry. We've seen what has happened, and yet this is what's taking place in the reality of our life. What do you do with suffering? And this is probably the greatest apologetic response to that question, because David Wilkerson said this. He said, when people ask me about how could God exist and there be so much suffering, he said two things. First, the people who complain the most about this question usually do the least about it. The people who complain the most about this question usually do the least about it. Those who complain most about the suffering of the world usually are the ones who do the least about the suffering of the world because they become so philosophical that it ceases to be a real issue to them. And the second thing he said is, I don't concern myself with this question anymore because I've determined to spend the rest of my life helping every person that I can who is suffering and simply allow the love of Jesus to be expressed to them through that effort. And that's exactly what happens in our Old Testament story this morning when a bartender turns into a hero. Look at verse 10 of chapter 25 one more time and look what happens. 2 Kings 25 verse 10. And then he, Nebuchadnezzar, supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. They came in with who knows what, probably sledgehammers and whatever else, and knocked down these walls and saying, let's just devastate everything. And this happened in 586 B.C. But now, now, now get this. 141 years later, God moves on the heart of a bartender, a man who is serving drinks to royalty, and determined that he was this, this man determined he was not going to complain about what was going on in Jerusalem, but he was going to go and fix that wall. And most of you know who I'm talking about. And 141 years later, A bartender becomes the governor of Jerusalem. A bartender becomes the man who is about to change the face of a nation, and his name is Nehemiah. Say that with me. Nehemiah wants to do something powerful for God, but yet he's in the wrong place. It's called Babylon. He's in the wrong lifestyle. He's serving drinks to the king. The wrong this, the wrong that. Yet God somehow in his brilliance looks at that profile and says, I know that the world would look at this and say, you're the wrong person for this because of this and this and this. But God looked at him and says, you are the perfect example to be used by God. Only the Lord can do that, church. 
Only God can take the least likely and use them for the glory of his name. Somebody in this house ought to be happy about that this morning. God can take your life and change everything. And what seems to be the worst situation for a city was meant to be for Nehemiah to raise him up. Jerusalem has been stripped of its people, stripped of its families, its youth, its protection. The walls are broken down. Everything was broken down. And here's what I believe with all of my heart. Listen to me carefully. Every broken thing in society is waiting for some godly man or some godly woman to step up and fix it and stop complaining about it. You know what, church? It's no gift to complain. That's not a special gift that you have. It's not a fruit of the Spirit, right? Amen? If you read in John Wesley's journal, you'll find that he says, um, he says this. It's in his journal. Some hot-headed woman came to him and said, Mr. Wesley, my talent is to speak my mind. How many of you know that? Some people, that's their talent, to speak my mind. And John Wesley responded to the lady by saying, woman, God would not mind if you would bury that talent. That's one you can bury. I'm convinced that every broken thing in society is waiting for a godly person to raise up. I don't think you're hearing me this morning. I know I'm having to communicate out of my weakness, but I want you to hear me carefully. Every broken thing in society, God is looking for the person whose heart is ready to respond. A godly man, thank you. And a godly woman, take that one for me, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I know it's unpleasant. I'm doing the best I can. Balcony ushers, if you would please uh, be attentive to the balcony. I would, I would be most grateful for it this morning. Thank you. Whatever it is, <clears throat> God is looking for someone to raise up and take care of it. I'm convinced that everything is broken in this country could be, could be fixed by a godly man or woman. If you're upset with the government then run for office and do something about it. If you're not happy with the movies, then do something about it. Some folks from Atlanta did that. It was called Courageous and Fireproof. How many of you ever heard of that? Whatever is the broken wall that you see that concerns you, maybe God is calling you to say, I see a broken wall, however large or small, and I'm going to fix that thing. Maybe God has something more for us than just sitting here and talking about what's going on. Maybe God wants you to do something. Maybe God wants us to stop complaining about our school systems. Maybe some of you should run for office on school boards in our community. Maybe God wants to raise you up to make the divine difference. Oh, it's terrible what's going on in our school system. It's terrible. This, well, then go change it for the glory of the name of Jesus. David Wilkerson reads an article in Life magazine in an abandoned car in a farmhouse, and he sees gang members on the front cover of the magazine, and these gang members had brutally beaten a crippled boy in Central Park, a young boy who was not able to even defend himself against the gang members of New York in the 1960s. And instead of just reading that article in the Life magazine and being horrified by it, he felt the Spirit of God say to him, you go to New York City and you fix that. Fix what's broken amongst our young people today. And at 27 years of age, 
David Wilkerson gets in a car and drives to New York City as a simple country preacher from Pennsylvania. And his whole plan was just to deal with the gang members of that case. But who would have known that his effort would start the fixing of a wall for generations of young people? Hallelujah. Where's Teen Challenge Fort Worth? Raise your hand. Teen Challenge, I want you to know something. Today, you ladies stand on the shoulders of a man who saw a need. He saw your need, and he decided to do something about it. And I will eternally be, uh, be grateful for it. His first contact was with the Mau Mau gang and seeing Nikki Cruz and leading him to Jesus. Dave Wilkerson's story is so very well known to most of us. Maybe you've heard all of it or read the book or seen the movie. When Wilkerson went to New York, someone told him, <clears throat> the one you've got to meet is Sonny Argonzoni. That's the guy that you really want to see get saved. But I want to tell you, he'll never get saved. He's so wicked and vile, he'll never get saved. So David Wilkerson was like sick him to a dog when he heard that. He's standing in all of New York City. And you know, it's not a small place. He's standing on the street corner in Brooklyn. And he literally looked at some random guy while he's on a street corner in Brooklyn. And he says, have you ever heard of someone named Sonny Argonzoni? And, and the guy said, well, yeah, I have. He said, do you know where Sonny Argonzoni lives? And the person said, yes, right there. You're standing in front of his house. Dave Wilkerson goes up there, talks to him, leads him to the Lord, and there are literally thousands of victory outreaches around America today. There's over 1,000 teen challenges and tens of thousands of young men and women because somebody, instead of complaining about what's happening with gangs and these young people today, goes to New York obeying the Holy Spirit and sees God do something far beyond anything he could have ever imagined. So how does that happen? How does it happen that God can touch you today? How does it happen? And as I prepare this, I have prayed, God, would you take this message and to that person whose heart is reaching out in the congregation of Bethesda on the Sunday morning of January 21st, God, would you do something within them? Stir the fire within them. How does it happen? Well, go with me to the book of Nehemiah now and let me read to you how it started with him. The Bible says in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 2, that some men from Judah came and they gave Nehemiah a report of what's going on. Nehemiah chapter 1, Hanani, one of my brothers, Nehemiah says, came to visit me with, with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is obviously, he's still with the king in Babylon. You can tell by the way he's placing this. Verse 3, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, this is verse 4, such a critical verse. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And the next few verses are his prayer to God. 
But it's that last verse that stood out to me. And here's what we must understand about Nehemiah at this point in his life. At this point, now, he is simply a cup bearer. That's who I'm calling the bartender. He's a cup bearer. What does that mean? It means he serves drinks to the king. That's his job. That's his only job. And so the dilemma for him is that his heart is broken over the devastation of his city, Jerusalem, but he's just a cupbearer. That's all he is, a servant, a minimum wage employee. So what can he do? He's extremely limited. What can he do with this massive devastation that I've spent the last few moments telling you about? At this point of his life, that's where he's, what he's facing And the question in the mind of Nehemiah had to be something like this. Can can these two worlds ever intersect? Can broken walls and my present job of serving tables and taking tips and all, can those two worlds ever intersect? Can my tears and my burden for Jerusalem ever intersect with the limitations of my position in life? But watch this in chapter 2. Now he's a cupbearer. And here's the story, Nehemiah 2. Following the spring, in the following spring, early in the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Now take note of that. You must understand, at this time in the culture, working for the king... You were not only paid to serve whatever your particular tasks were, but you were paid to be happy. You could not serve with an attitude. I'm thinking about implementing that policy here at Bethesda. (laughs) You walk in the pastor's office, you got to dance, you got to sing, you got to smile, you got to be happy. I think it's a good idea. Who's with me this morning? But that was true at that day and time. You could not serve with an attitude. And if you did have an attitude, I mean, we laugh about it, but let me tell you, it was, it was grave. The consequences were grave. You could be killed. If you came into the presence of the king and were anything other than joyous and joyful and happy, you could be killed for that. Because the king had developed this pseudo world around him where everyone feigned happiness. Everyone had to be happy. Everyone had to love him. Everyone had to please him. Everyone had to be joyful when you walked into his presence or you could be killed. So understand that as we read on. So Nehemiah is coming to the presence of the king. He'd never before been sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And of course, then he says, then he's, I'm terrified. Because what's happened is the king has obviously taken note of the fact that he's not happy, so he's terrified. And Nehemiah knew at that moment that that could cost him his life. But I replied, and note this reply. He starts off with a formality that they always have to. Long live the king! It's how you always are supposed to start when you approach the king. Long live the king. But how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. And the gates have been destroyed by fire. I love the grit demonstrated here by Nehemiah 
basically what he's saying is this. He's realized, you know what? My cover's blown. I can't pretend to be happy. The city that I love is in ruins. My heart is breaking. I've had to come into the presence of the king. I couldn't do the happy thing today. But basically, he says this. If I'm going to be killed anyway, at least I want to go out trying. And here it is. If you're going to kill me, then I'm going to tell you why I'm so sad. I'll just come out and tell you. So look what happens. He's told the king, the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. The gates have been destroyed by fire. Verse 4, then the king asks, well, how can I help you? And what we're about to read in the next verse could possibly become one of your favorite verses on prayer. It's become one of mine. And I love this because the very next thing, we're literally living the moment of the king asks, how can I help you? And the next thing is what the Bible says, with a prayer to the God of heaven. The king asked him what he wants, and the Bible says that he prayed. I mean, can't you hear it right now? Here he's standing before the king. His cover's been blown. Can't you just hear him say, Father, I need your help right now. Can't you hear him say it? And you know what, church? God can answer that kind of prayer. God can answer that kind of prayer. You can send up an SOS any hour of the day or night. It doesn't have to be lengthy. In fact, sometimes the best prayer you can ever pray is one word. Help. Who's ever prayed that prayer? Help. About five years ago, Shaler, my son, and I were privileged to spend about three days in a very small group setting with British theologian David Pawson. It was in Cincinnati. Mr. Pawson also had pastored in England. He's elderly now, but he'd pastored in England. And he, he gave a testimony that was, that was so simple. And he obviously, he taught with great depth the Word of God those three days that we were there. But what stands out to me almost more than anything else was the simplicity of a testimony that he gave. And it was this. He was talking about some circumstance that he was in, and it was one for which he really wasn't necessarily prepared. It, it, it's something that blindsided him. Um, you know, we pastors were supposed to have an answer, a profound answer, at any moment, any hour of the day or night, you know, and often we just don't. And he got blindsided with a couple that came to him and asking him something, and, and he was caught off guard. And he told that small group of pastors in our group that in that very moment, in the quiet of his heart, while literally looking in the eyes of the couple who were expecting a profound answer from him, he simply said, he said it, didn't say it out loud, but in the quiet of his heart, he said, Father, a word of wisdom, please. A word of wisdom, please. And I recommend that to all of us who are facing a difficult situation or you're engaged in a conversation with someone and you don't know what to say. You just know it's important the next thing that comes out of your mouth. It's going to make a profound difference. Can I just encourage all of us be ready to say in an instant, in that moment, whether you say it out loud or you say it in the quiet of your heart, Father, give me a word of wisdom. Come on, let's do it right now. Father, and the Lord gave it. And that is exactly what happened. And that seems to be the same kind of situation that Nehemiah is facing. Nehemiah is standing before the king, engaged in conversation and having to be honest and transparent about his emotional state of being. And the king says, how can I help? And I love the fact that the Bible says, and with a prayer to the God of heaven. And in that moment, a holy boldness must have fell, fallen on Nehemiah in that moment because he replied to the king by saying, not only do I want to build that wall, 
I also want papers from you so that I can walk back and no one can touch me. I can I have free to roam wherever I need to go. If anyone comes against me, I, this is just the cupbearer. He had no right to ask all these things of the king. He said, if anyone comes against me, I can just say, nope, here's my paper. Artaxerxes says, you can't touch me. Here's, here's where I'm at. And I want to walk safely through 10 provinces so that no one can beat me up. And while I'm asking and while I have you here, and I want lumber, and not just any lumber. I want the lumber from the royal forest. I want that king's wood. If we're going to build this wall, then I'm building it with your wood, and no one can touch me. And the king looked at him and replied, do it. Do it. And in that moment, the bartender becomes the builder of the wall. Church, let me ask you, don't you think if you had been God, that you would have picked someone who was an architect or, or, um, or a general contractor or, or someone with building experience? Isn't that who, I mean, that's who I would have picked. If, if the wall had to be rebuilt, I think I would have picked someone who knew how to do that. But I, it just reminds me of that phrase we've quoted so often, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Say that with me. God doesn't call God's standard, his measuring stick, his eyes are looking for people with passion, not people who are asleep or people who just want to complain about it. He's looking for people with passion. And Nehemiah says, when I heard what had happened to my city, the devastation to the city he loved, I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to God in heaven. And God Picked that cupbearer. Can I talk to you out of my heart for just a second, church, as your pastor? It's entirely possible, in fact, it's probable, <clears throat> that within the course of our journey together, with me as your pastor and you as a congregation member of Bethesda, that somewhere along the way, Somewhere along our journey together, a decision will be made regarding the church that is not to your suiting, not the choice you would have made. And I understand that. Uh, believe it or not, there are decisions made on this campus that aren't necessarily to my suiting and not necessarily the choice I would have made either. That happens from time to time. And I, but I, I understand that. I understand that we often have differences opinion, of opinion. And as much as I don't like it, Pretty much every day, I have to make choices and decisions that please some and disappoint others. Many of you are in the same kind of situation in your function in life. And that's just life. That's just people. But if the occasion arises that you're troubled enough over a decision that was made in the church that you want to come and talk to me, I want you to know I welcome that. I'm, uh, I'm always willing to open my heart and be involved in dialogue and tell you what I know. Nothing, nothing hidden here. And tell you what, we've, what we did and why we did it and why we felt the Lord instructed us to do that. But I want you to know this, that when you come to talk to me, and if you do that, there's two things that I'm looking for when you walk in the door. I think it's only fair to let you know. There's two things I'm looking for. If you've come to make uh, a challenge about something, and that's fine, it really is fine. But number one, here's what I'm looking for. That is this. 
Is your heart truly broken over the situation or are you just wanting to voice your opinion? Is your heart truly broken over the situation or do you just want your voice to be heard? Because I would propose to you that Nehemiah has set a wonderful example for us here when he said, when I heard what had happened, I wept. In fact, for days, I not only wept, I mourned and I fasted and I cried out to God in heaven. Because here's the reality, you can have a completely different vantage point. You can have a completely different view, you can have a completely different opinion and understanding and that's, that's fine. But the posturing that will open the heart of this pastor is one where it is communicated either verbally or non-verbally that says this, I'm not just here to get my way, I'm not just here to argue, but pastor, I have mourned, I have fasted, I have cried out to God about something that I'm seeing that is troubling me. Whatever it is, that's the posturing of someone who comes to make a difference. That's one thing I'm looking for in the posturing of someone who walks in the doors of my office. Is their heart broken? And can I see from their spirit that they have mourned, they've fasted, they've prayed, they've cried out to God and said, God, this is what I'm troubled about. And the other thing I'm looking for is this, second thing, in the way that someone presents themselves, and that is this. When you come to talk about something that, over which you have a difference of opinion, do you really want to help? Do you really want to help? Or do you just want to gripe? Do you want to help? Or do you just want to voice another opinion? Because if you just want to gripe, then guess what? Our meeting's going to be cut short. But if you want to help, then we can talk. And it is a dramatic difference in someone who really wants to help the situation. And that's what we saw in Nehemiah. Now having said that, I want you to know this. Because I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from here or hear this on the website and think that this is something we deal with on a regular basis. Do you realize how blessed we are in this fellowship? We are extremely blessed. This is a church that does not have a contentious spirit. And I'm qualified to address that I've been here nearly 40 years. We do not have a board of deacons that is, there's not a contentious spirit on our board. Everything they do, they do in unity and in prayer. We don't have that kind of situation. We are very blessed. I've seen churches that, op- that have a contentious spirit. That is not what we have here. Now, we have a few stinkers that might raise up every once in a while, and that's all right. But it is not done with a contentious spirit. The people that, I, that are, the, are that group that call themselves Bethesda, they want what's best for the glory of the name of Jesus. They want what's best for the kingdom of God. They want what's best for this fellowship. And it's in that spirit that they approach it. And I am very blessed as a pastor to pastor a church with the spirit of this church. Could you just put your hands together and thank the Lord with me for that a moment? But that's the spirit that Nehemiah showed us. The kind of spirit that gets the attention of the heart of God and gets to the heart of God. Because he'd mourned, he'd fasted, and he'd prayed over the circumstances. When that happened, the bartender becomes the wall builder. And the Bible tells us that in just 52 days, the wall builder becomes the governor of Judah. And can I just say to you this morning, church, 
those of you who think, think you are in very limited circumstances, not in a position to affect your world, not in a position to make any kind of change or any kind of difference at all, I want you to be encouraged by this story because I want you to know this. God has so much more for your life. He has so much more possibility for you. So no matter where you see your stature, your position in life today, when God has placed a passion within you for that which pleases Him, then He will enable you. He will put you in the right place, give you the right words, and give you the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do what He's called you to do for the glory of the name of Jesus. So let me quickly, as I close, let me apply this to us today with three simple things. Number one, if you want to be a world changer, if you want to make a difference as Nehemiah did, then number one, keep your job, but be the best at it that you can possibly be. Keep your job, but be the best that you can possibly be. Nehemiah is serving tables, and God promotes him from that position. And when you're the cupbearer for the king, it was not uncommon that a cupbearer might try to even poison the king through the wine he was serving. So the cupbearer had to be trustworthy. You look at this and you go, you mean Artaxerxes didn't trust one Babylonian? No, he trusted the Jewish exile over his own people. Before the king even trusted his own family members, he said, there's just something about that Nehemiah guy that I trust him. Whatever Nehemiah did, he was the best at it, which is why the king was so quick to give him anything he needed and anything that he wanted to make that project take place. Wherever you are in life, Wherever you are in work, just be the best at it. You never know how God can use even, even your heathen supervisor to begin to underwrite what you're supposed to do for God. How about that? God could even use your godless supervisor to place you in the position that you need to be to do God's work. And who knew that his boss was going to help him build the walls of Jerusalem? You students, you be the best student you can be. You workers, be the best worker that you can be. That's how God uses you. Number two, verse four of chapter one, when he said, and I've quoted this several times, when I heard what had happened, I wept. In fact, I mourned, I fasted, I prayed to God in heaven. Some of you are looking to go into ministry. You BSM students, some of you other young students that you're hoping to go into ministry. Let me just say this. Start learning how to fast and pray now. Not when you get in the moment when it's gonna be desperate. Learn, can, 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 any, do I get any kind of a witness here in the house this morning? Start learning how to fast and pray now before the crisis moment. Because you need to be doing it now. From the, from the disciplines of prayer and fasting to, to the disciplines of devotion to the discipline of learning how to show up on time. All of those things are things that you need to be learning. Nehemiah was already praying and fasting before he even saw the wall. So if you're called to the mission field, you should be praying and fasting now. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Number three, and this is where I close. Pastor Brent, if you want to come. He said, when I heard what happened, I wept. When I heard what had happened to my city, I wept. Be very aware of what moves your heart and brings you to tears. Be very sensitive to what moves your heart and brings you to tears. That's the thing that caught Nehemiah's heart. It was, it was the wall. The temple was in ruins, but he didn't say, I've got to fix the temple. He didn't say, I've got to fix all this other stuff. 
No, he zeroed in on the one thing he knew to be his assignment from heaven, and that was to rebuild the wall. For him, it was the wall. He was passionate about that wall. I'm going to ask you today, what's your assignment from heaven? Do you know? Let me just ask. Raise your hand if you know what your assignment from heaven is. Raise your hand if you know what God's calling you to do. Maybe it's part of your not yet's. If you don't know, you need to be asking the Lord, Lord, what is it you're calling me to do? What is it you're calling me to be? What about you? And it doesn't matter how young or how old you are. But I'm asking today, how many are saying, God, whatever it is you have for me, I'm going to keep my heart open. Is that the statement of anybody in this house today? Then would you stand with me, please? Lord, I thank you today for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that you choose the unlikely. Because most of us, starting with me, would never have a chance if you chose only the qualified. Only those who are the most skilled. But I thank you, Lord, that you choose those who do seem unlikely. Somehow, Lord, in the majesty of your grace, you do things in a completely different way than the rest of us would. And so, Lord, we want to lift our hearts before you today and be sensitive to your voice. And, Lord, whatever it is that you are moving upon us, as it moves us to tears, let us be sensitive to recognize the tears that you place within our heart because that's the best signal to us that we're to get up and go and do something about it. So, Lord, we're going to pray this together. Church, pray after me. Jesus... Today I choose your will, your plan. Lord, keep me alert. I will watch and I will pray. When I weep, I will be alert. And I thank you, God, that wherever I am in life right now, I will be the best with your help. And I will do it For the glory of the name of Jesus, amen.